Well, we're continuing our study going verse by verse through the book of 1 Samuel. And the title of this morning's message is Making Sense of the Senseless. It is extremely challenging to try to make sense out of life. All too often we are called to explain the unexplainable and even more to defend the seemingly indefensible. There are many injustices in this world and we wonder why God allows certain things to happen as they do. In the passage before us this morning, there are a number of troubling events as we consider the narrative. There are some unique moral dilemmas that readily come to mind. Why are such things taking place, we may wonder. Today, we're going to seek to attempt to make some sense out of the seeming senseless events that we encounter in this narrative. We're going to be focusing particularly on the moral dilemmas. We will take the approach that we've taken on a number of occasions in studying 1 Samuel. First, I will simply go through the narrative verse by verse, highlighting the main points of the narrative in order to familiarize ourselves with the story. Not making much application, but just, again, familiarizing you with the story. Then I will circle back and make some observations to help us to better understand some of the biblical lessons that we are to learn from this narrative, and in particular, addressing, again, the moral dilemmas. So first, a consideration of the narrative. As we left off last week, David is continuing to flee from Saul. Saul is seeking to kill David. And so David flees from Saul to Nob to obtain the help of Abimelech the priest, in verse 1 of chapter 21, 21-1. Then David came to Nob, to Abimelech the priest, and Abimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? Abimelech is fearful when David arrives, for it tells us in verse 1 that Abimelech came to meet David trembling. Something doesn't seem quite right to Abimelech as David appears And so Abimelech asks him the question at the end of verse 1, why are you alone and no one with you? Something doesn't quite smell right. David deceives Abimelech, verse 2. And David said to Abimelech the priest, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now that was a a total lie as we look at the events that are recorded last week. It was not the truth. David asks help of Abimelech. First, he asks for food in verse 3. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread for whatever is here. Abimelech bends over backwards to try to help David, verse 4. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly, women have been kept from us, as always, when I go on expedition. 
The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now one of Saul's servants is a witness to all that is going to take place. Verse 7. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doag, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Next, David asks for a weapon. Verse 8. Then David said to Abimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I brought neither my sword nor my weapon with me, because the king's business required haste. Once again, David deceives Abimelech, and once again, Abimelech helps David. Verse 9, And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. And then David flees to Achish, verse 10. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Now we're going to skip to chapter 22 and pick up at verse 6 in the narrative. We're going to consider the skip verses next week. I'll come back to those. We won't skip them permanently. But rather, we want to just continue the narrative as it relates to this situation with Abimelech. David's hiding place is discovered in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 6. Now Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men who were with him. Saul now speaks to his men and confronts them about siding with David, verse 6. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the uh, tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand. And all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, that all of you have Inspired against me, no one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then Doeg speaks up and tells what he knows. Verse 9. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob to Abimelech, the son of Ahitab. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. So Saul sends for Abimelech and all his family appears before Saul. Then the king sent to summon Abimelech the priest, the son of Ahitab and all his father's house. The priests were at Nob and all of them came to the king. Now Saul confronts Abimelech in siding with David, verse 12. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Hytub. And he answered, Here am I, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword 
and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day. Abimelech defends his actions. Verse 14. Then Abimelech answered the king, and who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all his house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all of this, much or little. Saul declares that he will have Abimelech and all his family killed in verse 16. And the king said, you shall surely die, Abimelech, you and all your father's house. Saul's soldiers will not carry out his orders, verse 17. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand is with David. And they knew that they fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to, make the, to strike the priests of the Lord. However, Doag does carry out Saul's order to kill Abimelech and his family. Verse 18. The king said to Doag, you turn and strike the priests. And Doag the Edomite turned and struck down the priests and killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. Further, the residents of the city of Nob were killed as well. Verse 19, in Nob, the city of the people, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, oxen, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. However, one person escapes the massacre and goes to David, verse 20. But one of the sons of Abimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. He then tells David what had occurred, verse 21. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. David assumes responsibility in verse 22. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. David says, that he will protect Abimelech, verse 23. Stay with me, do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me, you shall be in safekeeping. That's the narrative. Now we will seek to try to make some sense of the seemingly senselessness. Why did all of this happen? Well, a number of answers could be given to that question, actually. For the narrative could be considered from a number of different perspectives. We could consider it from Abimelech's perspective, Saul's perspective, Doeg's perspective, David's perspective, and so on and so on. And depending on the perspective, you might come up with a different answer. So where do we even begin in trying to address the many difficult issues that are present in this text? We have lies, we have killing, we have deceit, we have all kinds of things taking place. And then what should be our takeaway? What, what, what should we learn from this account? 
How can we apply it to the events and circumstances of our life? Well, let us begin by considering the narrative from God's perspective and what God is doing. Why God would allow the destruction of Abimelech and his family in the first place. It's always a good place to start, to start with God. Well, it's important to realize the background to this passage that God is bringing judgment upon Abimelech and his family. This is not just a story of bad luck or of Doeg being at the wrong place in the wrong time. God is at work in the narrative and in all that is taking place. It was of the Lord that Doeg was present that day when David had come to Abimelech. If you look at 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 7, it reads, Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day. And then I'd like you to notice the next phrase. Detained before the Lord. Detained before the Lord. Doag was not even intending to be present that day. He expected his business to be finished and to be on his way. But he was detained. He was held up. He was staying longer than he anticipated. And it tells us that that is before the Lord. Before the Lord. This is a story of the fulfillment of God's prophetic judgment upon Eli and his family. Abimelech is the great grandson of Eli. And uh, Dr. Uh, Robert J. Vinoy, in his commentary on First and Second Samuel from the Cornerstone Biblical Commentary series, says this, and I quote, in spite of the horrific events of this chapter, there are nevertheless intimations of divine sovereignty and the ultimate triumph of God's kingdom. For example, Saul's command to Doeg resulted in the slaughter of the priests at Nob, but at the same time, it accomplished the fulfillment of the judgment that had been pronounced against the house of Eli in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 30 to 33. And I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles. If you would like to that passage, I'm going to read it. Remember, this is God's judgment upon Eli and his family after God had repeatedly rebuked Eli for honoring his sons before the Lord, making his sons more important than his priestly duties before God. His sons were quite wicked, and Eli did not restrain them. He did not remove them from the priesthood. And as a result, all Israel was going into sin. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. 
Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. So God had declared that there was going to be judgment upon the house of Eli, and that there was not going to be but one person spared from his descendants. Here, in 1 Samuel chapter 20 and 21, uh, we have the fact, reason, and detail of God's judgment on the house of Eli. One person, as it says, would escape this foretold judgment, and the person did indeed escape. In 1 Samuel 22, verse 20, But one of the sons of Abimelech, the son of Ahitab, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. All of this was in keeping with God's prophetic word. The purpose, the fact, all was accomplished and fulfilled. God's judgments will come to pass. Once again, we have God's sovereignty displayed. So there is reason. There is sense behind what appears to be senseless. Why this priest is going to die and why all these other priests that are his relatives, why do all they die? Well, this is God's judgment. This is God's purpose. This is God's design. There, in fact, is reason, moral reason, just reason for what is taking place. So we have God's sovereignty displayed in this passage. But what we really want to focus on this morning is the question of human responsibility. What does this passage teach us about human responsibility? Are the individuals in this passage culpable, responsible, guilty for their actions? Did anyone do anything that was sinful or wrong? Or can it be justified because one can say, well, God's will ultimately was fulfilled, his purpose was accomplished, therefore all this other stuff doesn't matter. This is a story of sinful people being responsible for their sinful actions. Saul is responsible for his sinful actions. Saul depicts those who do not support him as ungrateful in verse 7 of chapter 22. Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you conspired against me? Have you forgotten what I've done for you 
Don't you recognize the goodness that I've demonstrated to you? And Saul portrays his situation in such a way that he is a victim and should be pitied at the end of verse 8. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day. He's going to justify his actions and say, you should feel sorry for me. I'm the victim here. And you are in the wrong. For you have not disclosed these events that have transpired. Saul, in his brazen sinfulness, and of course, as we looked at chapter after chapter, we have seen how Saul continues to harden his heart. How Saul continues to seek to thwart the will of God. God had clearly declared to Saul that Saul was going to be removed as king, and there would come another one that was to be after him, and he rejected that and did everything he could to oppose God. And that opposition becomes ever-increasingly brazen, ever-increasingly willful. And so we find in verse 17 of chapter 22, the king said to the guard who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord. Kill the priests of the Lord. Here is Saul actively opposing God's priests. And without even a second thought, is going to take the lives of these 85 priests. Priests. Servant of God. Saul does what he does out of personal vengeance and in opposition to God's purpose in removing Saul from the kingship. If you look at verse 17, it says, And the king said to the guard who stood before him, Turn, kill the priests of the Lord. And he tells us the reason. Because their hand also is with David. That's what's motivating Saul. Saul wants these priests dead because he sees them as siding with David. They had helped David. My point is that Saul is not seeking to be God's instrument of justice in this instance. He is not offering himself up as being the one who is going to act on the behalf of God to bring judgment against Abimelech. That's not what's motivating him. This is not obedience to God in any way. It's quite the opposite. It's disobedience to God. It is a rejection of God's authority. He's seeking to have this priest and his family murdered because he views them as traitors who are helping David. And then Saul condemns them for what they did not do. In verse 17, I'll read the whole verse. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And, here's the point, 
they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. That's false. That's false. That's not what happened. And Abimelech is pleading his case before Saul. He says, I didn't know. I had every reason to think that David was serving you. He's your servant. He's your son-in-law. He's one of your military commanders. How was I to know? Abimelech says. I didn't know a lot. And he says, I didn't even know a little. I didn't know anything. But Saul won't hear that. Saul won't believe that. Saul won't accept that. And so, in the mind of Saul, he's putting to death innocent people. He is putting to death innocent people. Saul is increasingly becoming more brazen in his sinfulness and more clearly dishonoring God without fear. Saul is culpable for his actions. He was wrong. He was wrong. His motivations were sinful. Now we'll quickly move to the consideration of the actions of Saul's men. They did what was right in not killing the servants of the Lord. Verse 17 of chapter 22, 22, 17. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he had fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. They refused. They weren't going to go along with it. They knew that it was wrong. They risked their lives in defying Saul. Now they already saw the consequences of defying Saul. Kill these priests. And yet, these men sighed with the priests. They risked their lives for they knew that what Saul was asking them to do was sinful. They risked their lives. And Abimelech is killed anyway. And so one might ask the question, was that foolish on their part? What difference did their stand to make anyway? Here they are, they're risking their life. They refused to put to death these priests. Well, they prolonged the death of the priests by a few moments. For a few minutes, it made a difference. And then, here's this doeg, and he goes and wipes out all the priests. So why take a stand? Answer, because it's the right thing to do. It's the moral thing to do. That's an important lesson for us all to learn. 
It's not about the outcome. It's not about the difference that it makes. It's about the rightness of it. It's about the appropriateness of it. It's about honoring God. And it is always right to be obedient to God. It is always right to honor Him, regardless of the outcome. Regardless if it seems to have any lasting effect or not. That's not why we're obedient. We're obedient because it's God. And he makes the moral decisions. He makes the moral judgments. And we abide under his care. And by the grace of God, in almost an unexplicable manner, nothing happens to these defiant guardsmen. Nothing happens to these defiant guardsmen. Saul is willing to wipe out these priests. These guardsmen who openly defy Saul and refuse to follow his directions and order are spared. Are spared. That is the grace of God. That is the goodness of God. Pluck that away, and we're going to come back to that. Now let us consider the, the uh, actions of Doeg. They were sinful, of course. Sinful in two ways. First, he should not have followed Saul's command, even as Saul's own men did not follow Saul's command. And secondly, he knew the truth. He was there that day. He realized what was said. And he knew that the defense that Abimelech gave was the truth. Abimelech said, I didn't know. I didn't know. Doag knew what occurred that day. He had heard it with his own ears. But he does not defend the priests. He does not set the record straight. He goes along with the sham and the misrepresentation of Saul. So Doeg is guilty. He's culpable. Nothing happens to Doeg. There seems to be no consequence for his actions. Nothing is recorded in the text. It is to judgment that comes upon Doeg for his blatant, blatant sinful actions. Keep that in mind. We'll come back. But perhaps most instructive and most important for us this morning is David. David. Is David 
responsible for his actions. And what are we to think of David's lies and deception with regard to Abimelech? David lies and deceives Abimelech. That is quite clear. And we might ask the question, why did David do that in this instance? It seems out of character for David, doesn't it? What motivated him? Was it fear? Was it a lack of trust in God? Does it teach us anything about propensity to sin, etc.? Well, next week we're going to answer that question in much greater detail as we look at the intervening verses. For actually, the scripture has quite a bit to say that's quite relevant to that whole question. Suffice it to say this morning that what is significant is that David takes responsibility for the death of Abimelech. David knows that what he did was wrong. If you look at verse 22, 1 Samuel chapter 22, and David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. And then he says, quite clearly, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. It's important to realize that David knew at the time that he did it, that what he did was wrong. It says in verse 22, David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day. I knew on that day. I knew when it was happening. I knew when I was talking to Abimelech. This isn't some great revelation that David comes to after contemplating his actions for a period of time and then being grieved and then having this strike of conscience. No, this isn't something that he had to reflect upon. He, with wise eyes wide open at the time, knew, he says, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. So David knew that he was putting Abimelech's life in danger. He realized what he was doing. And secondly, David realized that had Abimelech known the real circumstances that were taking place, that humanly speaking, most likely Abimelech would not have helped David. But David, at this moment, doesn't care about the life of Abimelech. He's more concerned about his own life. He's more concerned about his own skin than he is about God's priest. He's culpable for that. He's responsible for that. He is guilty for that. 
And David rightly takes blame for the death of Abimelech's family. David owns what has happened. And that's quite remarkable. If you look at verse 22, at the end of verse 22, he says, I have occasioned the death of the persons of your father's house. Notice that he doesn't shift the blame. And there's a lot of blame to go around here. But he doesn't shift the blame. He doesn't say, oh, that wicked Saul. And Saul was wicked. And Saul gave the order. David didn't give the order. But he doesn't shift the blame and say, oh, that wicked Saul. He doesn't shift the blame to Doeg. That scoundrel. That wicked person. I knew that day that that Doeg is no good. And look what he did to your family. That Doeg, let's get even with him. Let's, let's tar him and feather him. Let's make him pay. And there would have been truth in that. But it's not the whole story. And for David, it wasn't the most important aspect of the story. David realized all this came about because of my lie. If I hadn't lied, Doeg wouldn't have had anything to hear. Doeg wouldn't have had anything to report. Saul would not have killed Abimelech. None of this would have happened, he says. If it weren't for me, I have occasioned the death of your family. That's spiritual understanding. That's humility. That's the tough, difficult job of accepting responsibility for our own sinfulness. And lastly, David doesn't shift the blame to God. David doesn't say, I'm doing God's will here. God has intentioned the death of Abimelech. I'm simply his instrument. I'm doing ultimately what God was going to have done. Who am I to resist against God? God, uh, David doesn't wash his hands in the sovereignty of God. For once again, David isn't seeking to serve God in this. David is not seeking to exercise God's faithful judgment. He is not seeking to bring about righteousness in Israel. 
He's trying to save his hide. And he doesn't care at this point whether what he understands to be an innocent person is going to suffer or not. He rightly takes the blame. So, what are some takeaways? What's some application? Well, first of all, even though the sinful acts of mankind may actually achieve the purpose of God, nevertheless, they are still sinful acts and worthy of condemnation. We're taught that repeatedly in the scriptures. Pharaoh, whom God raised up for the very purpose and the very occasion for which Solomon, I mean, excuse me, in which Pharaoh exercises his persecution over the Israelites, nonetheless is responsible. But where this is most clearly seen and revealed is in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was God's purpose and design that Christ died on the cross. He was a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Jesus said to Pilate, you would have no authority or power over me, but such is given to you as the Father. But on the day of Pentecost, Peter rises up and he addresses the people that are gathered on that Pentecost day and says this concerning Jesus, him, referring to Jesus, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Peter says, Jesus, who was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. In other words, God had this all planned. This was all God's will that Jesus died on the cross. This isn't God somehow being overcome or thwarted. No, this was God's purpose. You have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Yes, this is God's purpose, but you are wicked. You weren't seeking to bring about salvation to the world. You weren't seeking to bring honor and glory to God. You were putting an innocent man to death. You're guilty. Don't hide behind the sovereignty of God. Take your responsibility and also the forgiveness that God offers you. We have in this passage and throughout the scriptures the unexplicable nature of grace. Grace. Grace is unmerited favor. 
David is spared by the grace of God. David doesn't deserve to be spared on this occasion. This is not a reward for David's faithfulness that he escapes. This is God's grace. This is God's grace. Now, that thought's going to be developed much greater next week as we look at these intervening periods. But now, focus on this is God's grace. And remember that David is spared by the grace of God, not because of his moral character. And David is spared by the grace of God, not his lie. Not his lie. For without God's protection, that lie would have been meaningless. That isn't the real reason that David is spared that day. He's spared because God had chosen him to be the next king and he would be the next king. He was spared by a sovereign God who was going to watch over him and protect him. God had made a promise and a covenant with David. That is why he was spared. Not his lie. Not his lie. We find in this passage that the enemies of the Lord become the enemies of God's people. If you look at verse 22, verse 23, it says, Stay with me and do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. Jesus said, If the world hates you, know that it will hate me before it hated you. God's people experience many injustices. God's people are not always spared in this life. And God's people are spared in this life, not always as a reward of their faithfulness, but rather as an act of true grace. So again, let's reflect upon David. God spared David's life even though David lied in seeking to be spared. Despite the fact that David had put other lives at risk. God did not approve of David's lie. There is nothing in the text that states that God approved of David's lie, and it is the clear teaching of Scripture that one should not lie. So here's a significant and important warning, that not all the actions of a believer, even mature, godly believers, are to be followed. We need discernment. People will fail us. People will not always act righteously. And of course, with David, we, we, we know what's going to happen with Bathsheba, and we know what's going to happen with her husband. We know that he's going to commit adultery. We know he's going to commit murder. Here it's a lie. Just because... A believer does a sinful thing, doesn't make it right. And what's real important to understand in life 
is just because a person does a sinful thing and it turns out right, doesn't make it right. By God's grace, many times, many times, our sins appear to have no consequence. The scripture warns about marrying a non-believer, and I can tell you of many, many individuals who have married a non-believer, and that person comes to faith, and, and their marriage is blessed, and it seems as though there's no consequence. That's grace, people. That's grace. And we should look back on our own life, our own disobedience, and recognize how often God has spared us the consequences of those actions. Oh, the goodness and mercy and grace of God. The other great takeaway is sometimes, as believers, you can do the right thing. And it seems to turn out horribly wrong. It seems like an injustice. Hebrews chapter 11, that great passage of faith, goes through and talks about the heroes of the faith and depicts many of their deliverances. And then after it depicts their deliverances, it says, but then there were some. And they died. They were given to beasts. They experienced hardship and difficulty, even though they did the right thing. You can't make moral judgments based on outcomes. You can't make a determination of right and wrong simply on how things turn out. That has to be based upon the authority of the scripture. Ultimate takeaways. First, once again, we can be assured that God is sovereign over all things. God has a purpose. God has a design. The sinful actions of men and women do not thwart the purpose of God. The purpose of God can never be a source of personal justification for sinful wrongdoing. We're accountable. We are responsible for the sins in our lives. We can trust God in his application of justice, mercy, and grace. We can't explain it. 
but we can trust God. The whole aspect of grace is that it's unmerited favor. It's undeserved. I remember years ago, I was assigned a responsibility, and it turned out to be a wonderful blessing. But I was, I was assigned personally by annual conference to do a study as part of the Pastoral Relations Committee on looking at what the Scripture said about restoring pastors who had gone into sin and try to come up with a pattern and develop steps for restoration, which made me look at the Scriptures looking for a pattern of God's grace. And the one conclusion I came to was there is no pattern. There is no explanation for grace. Why is Aaron allowed to continue in the priesthood after his son, after his sin? Why is David allowed to continue as king in his sin? And Uzzah is put to death because he reaches out and touches the ark that stumbles? What we can do and what we should do is marvel at God's grace. Marvel at God's grace. And say to ourselves, we are not deserving of God's blessing. God's good to us. God is gracious. David is not deserving. David's a recipient of grace. God is just. God is good. God is merciful. Let us stand for the truth. Let us do what is right and not justify sinful actions. Let's pray. Almighty God, help us and keep us. For we know if David can do such things, certainly we can do such things. We can be people that doubt. We can be people who are concerned about our own well-being. We can be people that lie. We can be people that deceive. But Lord, may we follow the example of David in accepting responsibility for our actions. And Lord, may we marvel at your grace and thank you for all the times in our lives of our inconsistency that we have not reaped the whirlwind that we could have reaped. And Lord, help us, help us to long to do what is right. Whether it seems to make any lasting difference or not, but simply because it's the right thing to do, may we do what is right. Because simply we want to honor and glorify your name. Help us to be steadfast in Jesus' name. Amen.